0: Hey everyone, before we start this episode, I just wanted to remind everybody that we issued a correction last episode when I misspoke and said percentage of revenue from nuclear and what I really meant was generating power. Okay, let's start the show. Welcome, everybody, to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we explore the natural environment, our society, and a company's governance structure through the lens of the weekly news. I'm your host, Mike DiCibato, and this week, Arna Klug and Bentley Kaplan join me to discuss the ongoing strikes at GM. And then one of our Aussie analysts, Brendan Baker, joins Bentley and me to discuss the Australian rejection of a Korean coal mine specifically due to environmental concerns. Thanks, as always, for joining us. Stay tuned. Okay, so a message appeared in the early morning of September 16th on the United Auto Worker Union's webpage that said, Auto workers go on strike after years of tirelessly helping General Motors reach record level profits. And so the strike at USGM plants began with 50,000 employees walking out onto the street. And so now let us walk into the stack card for GM. Because at MSCI ESG Research, we rank companies on their exposure to environmental, social, or governance risk factors on a scale from triple C to triple A. And GM is at the triple C range. Aside from the issues it's faced with restructuring, the rub here is that we found GM's labor management program fails to adhere to best practices to manage labor-related risks such as this now gm like most auto companies has built up its factory automation and in part its electric vehicle fleet automation is the obvious labor problem here but electrification does labor no favors electric vehicles require less parts and less parts mean less people are needed in the factories so in general due to these factors car makers are definitely going to continue to cut their labor force so arna you cover gm it seems like this company is making more cuts than others. Is the strike unique to GM? Or is, and is this company just a bad example of how an auto company should be run? Or is this a more endemic problem?
1: Well, I mean, auto unions in the U.S. were pretty strong in the past, especially in the boom times of the auto industry. But, I mean, um, in the times of the financial crisis, right, so there was a lot of pressure on unions to accept um, um, lower wages and not good working conditions anymore. But, I mean, GM... As you mentioned before, did pretty good the last year. So actually now the the unions say we want to yeah, benefit from the from the past, from the good and the current good situation, right? And actually um, the burden they have taken. Um, at the same time, um, yeah, the structuring is going on and right. So actually the strikes actually. Um, it's It's quite interesting because it comes at times when actually at the same time g m is making some good money and made some good money in the past past years at the same time there will be more and more changes and pressure on on the unions and the work so workforce ahead so it's a like situation i guess the unions now see it, it's probably the, one of the last good moments to try to 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 get back right what they um um, what they contributed in the past.
0: Right, and a strike is the last thing workers or the company wants. For workers, it means you lose your source of livelihood. In this case, the strikers are getting $250 a week from, I assume, their union dues instead of normal wages because they're not actually working. And companies cannot operate. And And usually strikers will try to walk out when the company is doing well, because they have more bargaining power, they can say things like, look at how profitable we are, why are we under this boot of inequality? You said it might be, Arna, the last time for these workers to pressure GM for their rights, and GM is making some good money. So could you kind of expound on that for me? Mm -hmm.
1: Well, actually, uh, financially, GM is doing pretty good, right? The last year had been quite successful for the company and um actually so the company is not like in a in a situation of like in how it was like 10 years ago uh, after the economic crisis and so on so um, after um like the restructuring and the and the um uh, and the issues uh, fundamentally so actually the company is doing pretty good but i mean the company see actually not only gm but also the whole industry um, they're facing a lot of uh, risks um, on the horizon right like not only coming from like strikes but really to the fundamental changes to the business model of the industry, and um, what we also covered last year already, that the company announced plans to restructure its business and to focus more on um, SUVs and um, electric vehicles, less on sedans, and also to close several plants in North America and to restructure the business, which basically means to lay off people. So um, it's like a fundamental and structural issue that the industry is facing.
0: Bentley, um, you recently wrote a long-form podcast on unions, which was great. I really enjoyed it. If you haven't listened to it, you definitely should go listen to it now uh, after this episode, of course. You cover companies with unionized workers also. Could we kind of take a step back here, and can you give us an historical context for this strike? Because it's not like it was just a spontaneous scream from GM workers. GM workers. This issue was planned, well-executed, and well covered by the media media attention being a major weapon on uh, for unions in the modern age so
2: i mean i'll just start with the, the union piece because that is i mean it's super interesting um, because the so the the history of obviously union workers with the us auto industry is, is long and and colorful um, but the during the f- the financial crisis from what i understand unions kind of s- step back from aggressive bargaining and took a lot of cuts to keep the company in business I think with the implicit or maybe explicit understanding that when things got better then you know they would get get their just desserts so what they set up was like the system where I think it's like a um sort of a two-tiered union system where like younger workers are getting much less than the the more senior workers. Um, And I think there was an expectation that when things got up and running again, you know, they would be able to bargain for something better. Um, And of course, they're they're also, they're they're bargaining at a four-year time horizon, which may feel like a really long time in any industry. Um, So I can understand, you know, the company's having mixed results
0: Okay, so then UAW has said this is a testing ground for other demonstrations at other companies because they represent workers at other companies. For investors that are either pro-unionized workers or those cautious about the risks posed by poor labor conditions and the existence of unions and your long-form pod, Bentley, was about the future of unions so could you tie this story into that really quick? Give us a forward-looking comment on unionization in the U.S.
2: The real challenge for unions now, and I think it's a global one, is how do you pivot away from an industry like autos and whether the role of the union is then the bridge into the next industry or you know the next skill set that workers are going to be looking for. And I think that's the kind of question that unions are going to have to answer if they're going to, if they're going to stay relevant. I think there will be support for for labor going up, but the question of how that manifests I think is is going to be one that's going to be difficult to answer immediately, um, and that's without you know the regulatory environment, which I think varies like if you look at the u s from state to state as to what kind of support a union can actually get, whether they can organize um, and then country to country also you know very very big variations um, but I think you know m- you know increasing inequality I think is a great is a great driver for support for a union or you know whatever the future of a union will be
0: all right all right lads it's time. I want your hot take here. I want some spice on how you think this situation is going to play out. Obviously, these are just predictions. We have no seeing stones here at MSCI, uh, so we don't have that kind of dark magic to figure out the future. But give me your omnipotent take on how this might end up for the workers and for GM.
1: Sure. Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. I mean, um, GM, um, actually, they offered offered more money to the people. At the same time, the union didn't ex- um, ex- accept. Um, so actually, it um, it's interesting to see, right? So the next uh, years could be really crucial for the for the auto industry, not only for GM. So um, I guess the conflict will somehow be solved, but it will also have a lot of costs. Or it's also expensive for the company uh, those days. And um, um, but I'm not. Too optimistic, and for the overall situation of the auto industry, and especially also with the uh, structuring, which will which will happen. So, um, yeah, it's tough times. At the same time, you see probably um, like the big gap between some um, employees, which are highly paid, uh, like uh, like the white collar workers, and the, the need of the industry for qualified IT specialists, engineers, and so on. At the same time, the um, actually still well paid workers compared to other industries. But whatever the pressure is growing growing so it's um, yeah it's a tough situation for the company
2: yeah so I mean who knows what's gonna happen I think um, the the two the two ingredients for me is um, the fact that you see this there's you know increasing support for labor movements in in an, in a market where almost everyone is employed so that you know that raises a question of you know what kind of employment is there and what kind of a life do you have with that employment and the second thing is uh, you know the sort of ambiguous Political environment, so it's difficult to know exactly, you know, how you know the top country leadership is going to come out on on this type of strike action. Um, so it may not be GM, but I think it could be a, a company soon where things get a lot uglier than you know just the strike. And it may not be GM; it might be Amazon; it might be. Um, Alphabet might be a, a you know different company altogether, but I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. Um, but I think the you know the what I think what will happen is this type of engagement is going to become more more frequent, and I think the companies that come out ahead are going to be the ones that know how to how to you know head them off, how to you know help pivot employees to new lines of work, and and to and to sort of lower this uh, to lower the pressure on on these types of situations.
0: For our second story, in Australia, a company called Kepco Bylong Australia wants to build a new coal mine in the Australian state, New South Wales. But the New South Wales Independent Planning Commission has refused to give development consent citing concerns about long-lasting environmental, agricultural, and heritage impact. In fact, on the commission's press release, they said the project is not in the public interest because... The predicted economic benefits would accrue only to the present generation, but the long-term environmental heritage and agricultural costs would be borne by future generations. Translation, we care more about the planet than we care about profit. So this mine was going to extract 120 million tons in 25 years, and it was going to be run by KEPCO, which is actually a subsidiary of Korea Electric Power Corporation. So let's do the quick stack card for Korea Electric Power Corporation. We rank the company at a double B because it's had issues with damaging the health of communities, bribery, and it's had related party transactions. But it is also adding some renewables to its portfolio. Its current carbon-free power generation share is at 29%. So there's that. But this isn't really a story about Kepco, it's about coal, and coal's slow demise. But what makes this story so interesting is Australia is one of the world's top coal exporters. On a tonnage basis, Australia exports 26.9% of the world's coal, that's second only to Indonesia, and according to the International Energy Agency, it is one of the top five coal producers in the world, Yet, we have a situation where an Australian state government has rejected a coal mine, saying that the mine's long-term damage to the environment outweighs its immediate economic benefits. So, Brendan, you're a local. Um, I want you to take me through this story. I know that current mines are not going to shut down, but this whole thing still seems like a major shift in one of the biggest exporters of coal's policy, right? Could you take me through the situation?
3: Yeah. No, no, there's, uh, I don't think there's that discourse going on at all, um, it's, it's, it's definitely, um, so, so the Labor government that put their proposal together, um, they had a climate policy kind of last year during the federal election, they had a just transition policy that was looking at, you know, this, this way of actually transitioning jobs from coal to renewable alternative energies or, or whatnot, and actually having a plan in place, there is no plan in place um, at the federal level for these, for these transitions. Um, There's just the expectation that we're going to be selling coal as an Australian for the rest of our lives and that there's no risk and you can see that with companies like Whitehaven Coal who just did their, um, they just released their TCFD related report um, and they were using the scenarios from like the IEA around sustainable development scenarios and and a bunch of others and they pretty much came to the conclusion that there is no risk to their coal exports because it's the best in the world and everyone's going to want to use that coal for the rest of um, their reserve life. So that's probably one of the biggest pure play there are coal miners in Australia and they're just saying there is no risk. And when you've got a coal player like that saying there is no risk, the federal government saying there is no risk, um, anyone who's operating in that coal region doesn't want to think that there's a risk because there's a risk to their jobs. Um, the big picture is that Australia is not really preparing themselves for any transition around that, despite the fact that everyone else around the world is, is highlighting the fact that there are these risks. Australia doesn't seem to be actually doing that. In the investor conversation, you're getting that. And you know people like IGCCC um, released a report that had a big element of that transition. Whether or not companies are actually doing anything about that or um, the state government or federal government is doing anything about that is a different question, unfortunately.
0: Right. Actually, before this call, I remember you were saying that the Australian federal government keeps saying that they are lowering emissions. But when the emissions data is released, it's seen that they're actually there's a steady increase in emissions and it reminds me of this fight that's happening between California and the Trump administration right now about car emissions because New South Wales is a state-run agency and they're trying to cut carbon and the Australian federal government is steadily increasing its carbon and like in the U.S. California is trying to cut car emissions and the Trump administration is trying to prevent them from cutting car emissions and being in the U.S. I cannot help but be painfully aware of it but it seems like this fight between state officials and the federal government knows no geographical boundaries.
3: Well, the issues of, of having a, a federal government that, that you know, isn't supporting this level of transition, which is, a, which is a good, you know, essentially going to create a, a huge risk for a lot of those companies operating there, um, in that there's no smooth transition away from something, and then there's going to be a huge risk to the societies that those industries are supporting. But when you've got a government that is actively pursuing the non-renewable agenda... Um, it's just enhancing that risk. So there was a, you know, an example is of the biggest utilities in Australia called AGL is one of the biggest emitters. They had a um, a five year plan to close one of the big thermal coal utilities, and um, and they had a they've got a net zero plan by 2050. They've got all these targets. They're actually quite progressive in terms of where they want their company to head. Um, and they they put out this plan probably, it was probably last year about five you know it's a five year um, the, you know, this is going to happen in five years. So they've been very public with what they're going to do because they want to make sure that they're transparent. And the federal government has essentially attacked that company and lobbied against that company about the risks that it's going to cause um, for you know energy security and whatnot. Whereas this company has come out there, said it's going to make them, it's going to be more efficient, it's going to drop energy prices, and it's actually going to create more jobs. And all that plan is out there, but the but the federal government is actively engaging against it. And you know you have to ask yourself, well, why? Why is that? Why why is that happening um, when you've got a, a, a federal government, you know, preventing a company from actually transitioning to a, a low carbon utility?
0: This is a, so. This is the second time an Australian mine has been prevented due to environmental issues. Do you think this is now a viable risk for uh, the Australian coal industry in general? or would that require a different sort of occurrence? You
3: know, and if, if Australia keeps selling coal to Japan and Indonesia and Southeast Asia and China, and that is not going down, there's a very small chance that the federal government's gonna step in and start preventing a lot of these projects. I just, I just can't see that happening. So um, that's, that's the, only, the only time I think that's actually really gonna come into play is when, is when those exports start to fall drastically. And that's really dependent on our export countries, you know, not using our coal. So once that happens, then the whole game is, is slightly different.
0: Right. So I wanted to get a global perspective on this. And, Bentley, you live in South Africa. And you were telling me before this call that there's this the giant state utility called um, SCOM, I think, and that it's heavily reliant on coal. And as such, the South African economy is heavily reliant on coal. And there is local pressure building against dirty fuels. But the federal government remains kind of intransigent. So I was wondering if you could kind of take me through South Africa's relationship with renewables. Um, is the Cape Town government attempting to integrate renewables widely, Bentley?
2: Uh, so I mean, South Africa. I can speak for South Africa pretty clearly. So the the there was a very very deliberate um, political resistance to any kind of uh, renewables program um so because the 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 power grid is a monopoly um controlled by the state you can't actually plug in renewables without state permission so they they basically yeah. dragged their heels for for a decade on that okay. which you know made it impossible for anyone who wanted to develop um you know at scale renewable projects which is really the only way it it works for investors um you know and so what that does is just reinforces the status quo and you know the um uh, sort of basically the impetus for, for coal and fossil fuel carries on. Um, you know, I mean, so one, one thing also worth considering, like a lot of developing countries, which, you know, Africa is full of, is the, you know, the the most pressing needs, the ones that have political expediency are not really climate change yet. I think they will be shortly, um, particularly when the social effects of climate change are felt, you know, more readily. Uh, particularly around sort of food security and and water, I think you know those kinds of things. I think that will exert pressure. Um, but from a you know from a cutting emissions by X percent by X year, that's really not um, not high priority yet from you know at a government level. Um, and in some cases, there would be active resistance. Um, and one other influence is also just you know where. Um, where investments are coming from, you know, from international investors. And some of that is directed towards uh, fossil fuel powered stations, basically, um, in, in a variety of African countries.
0: So these battles create uncertainty, which creates volatility, which makes businesses nervous and investors nervous. So I was wondering if either of you could kind of discuss whether or not investors in Australia or South Africa are beginning to try to shift away from fossil fuels in a a meaningful way and into renewables. In the U.S., there's a lot of cash going into renewables. We've we've talked about that almost ad nauseum. But I would like to hear how the rest of the world is faring. Um, Is there pressure from states and communities to push asset owners away from fossil fuels and into renewables?
3: Yeah, a lot of of the asset owners um, down in Australia uh, have to invest in a certain amount of domestic equities and they have to... um, uh, you know, essentially, they're not. A lot of them aren't focused on divestment. Um, a lot of them prefer to stay around um, the engagement side of things. Um, if they start removing, um, you know, fossil fuels from their from their portfolios, if that's the way they go, then they're going to lose a, a huge chunk um, of the Australian of the ASX, essentially, um, which which causes them issues from a tracking error perspective and whatnot. But because this is because this is definitely starting from a, a social, you know, there's this social element that's kind of changing this regulatory landscape is changing Uh, I can imagine this is definitely echoing in their minds about oh maybe maybe this shift is happening more quickly than we thought uh, and we need to figure out how we can factor in maybe you know some of these stranded assets these these things might become stranded um, a lot more sooner if there are more regulatory shifts and typically they haven't but the fact that we've had three of these um, now in the last I think it's 12 months or six months um, you know that maybe there 's maybe there 's going to be significantly more, and that shift might come a lot more quickly than they expect
2: uh, yeah i mean so the um, you know the, the the question of whether there 's groundswell from community pressure or NGO pressure that 's going to trickle up into government i mean the, you know into investors investing in specific projects um, is a is a good one I think the um, you know, I've, I've heard lots of examples of these fantastic community level projects, which is, you know, distributed grid and solar and, um, you know, can help, you know, um, sort of micro lending built into it and, and that kind of thing. But the I think the reality is if for, for most investors, particularly, you know, like the large asset managers and owners, those projects are way too small and too, you know, too um, nuanced and too complex to actually to invest in that scale. So I think the, the the you know the question of where they're going to be able to put their money and I think there are a lot of investors very keen for renewables or you know transitional um energy sources I think it really does come down to whether the government's on side and whether they're going to be making you know making it a smooth a smooth development because I think renewables is you know there are some there are some kinks to it it's not a simple you know it's not a simple predictable project that you're going to be investing in so unless you have that backing I just don't think it's going to happen um so un- unless the, you know, the the groundswell can pressure political and particularly regulatory changes. I don't think the investors are going to have, you know, the the slice of pie that they're really looking for. I think they are interested. I think they need somewhere to, to put that money.
0: All right, that's it for the week. I wanted to thank Bentley and Brendan and Arna for joining me to discuss this week's news with an ESG twist. And I want to thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us. We always appreciate it. See you next week.